Good morning. This is the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Nominations Hearing for Governor Sam Brambeck to be the Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom and Miss Michelle Cisson to be the U.S. Ambassador to Haiti. Thank you both for being here with us today and for your willingness to serve. As I told the nominees earlier, I'm going to abbreviate my opening statement because we do have votes scheduled in the Senate at 11. These are important nominations, and I want to make sure everybody has time uh, to answer questions. I would, always, I would always also encourage the nominees, as your statements, opening statements will be in the record, um, make sure you say what you need to say, but I know our members are looking forward to engaging with you, and we want to make sure they have the full opportunity to do that. On international religious freedom, I just think any sort of cursory glance around the globe will reveal daily assaults on religious freedom. In Burma, we have nearly half a million Rohingya Muslims that have been forced to flee their homes to, to horrific violence. In Iraq and Syria, ancient Christian communities, Yazidi and other religious minorities are on the verge of extinction. Uh, in Iran, the Baha'i minority is ruthlessly persecuted. In Pakistan, draconian blasphemy laws sentence innocent people to death. In China, the government shuts down underground churches, bulldozes, Tibetan Buddhist centers. Um, in Cuba, the Castro regime regularly arrests the ladies in white on their way to mass every Sunday, including this past Sunday. In Saudi Arabia, the official textbooks teach hate and intolerance towards religious minorities. So, Sadly, there's no corner of the map that is untouched, and that's why a robust American engagement on behalf of the beleaguered faith communities is an urgent need, and I think in our national security interests, so the hearing could not be timelier. As I would say, Governor Baumbach has been a long, has been a long time champion of the issue of religious freedom globally. He sought and sought to ensure that America's first freedom is infused into our U.S. foreign policy. Among other things, he was the driving force in passing the original International Religious Freedom Act in 1998, which created the position he's now nominated to fill. In Haiti yesterday, Ms. Sison and I spoke about the challenges and opportunities in Haiti. Florida, my home state, has the largest Haitian-American diaspora, and, and I remain engaged in the community and in the many challenges facing their nation of birth. One of the major areas of concern is the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti, known as MINUSTA, is scheduled to withdraw on October 15th, just a few days from now. The new security mission uh, is smaller than the original mission. And so it's vital that the United States support international efforts to enhance and, remain, and maintain security in Haiti. Ongoing natural disasters, global health challenges like HIV, AIDS, malaria, and cholera have also undermined Haiti's ability to meet its full potential. I personally have seen firsthand the potential of the Haitian community when they have given the opportunity as they have in Florida, and I'm committed to supporting U.S. initiatives that promote good governance and security, and, uh, and hopefully our foreign policy will remain committed in that direction. I'll now introduce Senator Kane, and then obviously uh, also our, our ranking member, Senator Cardin, joins us, and he may have some comments he would like to make at the opening, and then hopefully we can proceed to a brief introductory statements and get right into the questions. Again, we apologize, but uh, as Governor Brownback knows, the, the Senate, uh, does things this way. So anyway, <laughs> Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I've enjoyed working with you on religious liberty issues. The, the day I got back from a wild 105-day ride in November of uh, 2016, you and I introduced a bill about combating anti-Semitism around the globe through the State Department, and I've appreciated your partnership and also really am thrilled to have both these nominees who are uh, have uh, strong public service track records, but also my friend uh, and a great champion of religious liberty, uh, Frank Wolf here. I'm not going to give an opening comment except to say that it's important that we have uh, Governor Brownback's hearing on the same day as we're going to follow up with a substantive hearing about um, the situation of minorities, including religious minorities in Iraq. So I'm glad that we're doing both of these together, and that will be all the opening comments I'll make. 
Thank you. And uh, the ranking member, Senator Cardin, is here. Him and I have worked together now on countless human rights uh, issues, so much so that people are starting to say we look alike. I don't know. <laughs> that's what that would be good for me. Oh, that, that's Senator a great Cardin. compliment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. And Senator Rubio has been a great champion on human rights. And I think he would agree with me uh, that we're all students of uh, Frank Wolf. And uh, Frank, we thank you for your long commitment to human rights. It was a real honor to serve with you in the House of Representatives. And uh, it's always good to see you. You're a great friend and a great role model for all of us. So thank you for being here. Uh, and and to, it's, it's Senator Brownback, not uh, Governor. We take the higher title. <laughs> <laughs> Senator uh, was a, a great leader on the Helsinki Commission. We worked together on many human rights issues. Uh, uh, a great record, has an uh, excellent record of working across party line to get things done in the United States Senate. And we very much admire your continued interest to serve the public. And, we thank you and your family for being willing uh, to serve our country. It, it is a tremendous sacrifice. And to Ms. Sisson, I understand you're a Marylander, so, um, and you're, you've served a, a career in diplomatic service. Uh, we thank you for your willingness to continue to serve our country. And again, we thank you and your family. And you had the best sense to live in the state of Maryland, so we appreciate that very much. All right, Ms. Sisson, we'll begin with you. You have an opening Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you as President Trump's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Haiti. I am grateful for the confidence the President and Secretary Tillerson have placed in me. For the past three decades, I've been honored to represent our country as a career Foreign Service officer. I want to give a shout out today to my daughters, Allie and Jessica, U.S. Foreign Service kids who traveled the world with me. I've been privileged to lead our embassies in the United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, and Sri Lanka as U.S. Ambassador and currently serve as the U.S. Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed by the Senate, I pledge to work closely with the Congress to advance America's interests in Haiti. The U.S. and Haiti share a long history. We are close neighbors and are linked through a sizable Haitian-American diaspora. Over the years, Haiti has suffered periods of violence and political instability that slowed its economic growth. I first served in Haiti in the early 1980s, my first tour with the State Department. Then, as now, it was clear that Haiti needed to strengthen governmental institutions, good governance, and transparency if it was to prosper and lift its citizens from deep poverty. Today, after two years of political impasse, Haiti has a democratically elected government in place, the United States and the international community now have a long-term partner with whom we can engage. The United States has worked in partnership with a Haitian-led process to help the country build a more promising future. Thanks to broad bipartisan support in Congress, U.S. assistance has helped advance economic opportunities for Haitians, develop a comprehensive food security strategy, provide access to basic health care and water and sanitation services, and improve educational opportunities for youth. This strong U.S. engagement helps encourage Haitians to live and work in Haiti rather than embark on often dangerous and illegal migration, including to the United States, which in turn supports U.S. efforts to secure our borders. Since 2010, U.S. assistance has seen notable successes. For example, 
$8 million in investment capital from the private sector and other sources has been mobilized through a USAID project to assist small and medium-sized enterprises, creating jobs for over 13,000 Haitians, about a third of whom are women. In addition, almost 13,000 jobs have been created in northern Haiti's industrial park with U.S. support. And some 70,000 farmers have increased incomes, while the U.S. government has also introduced new technologies, including improved seeds, fertilizer, irrigation, to another 118,000 farming households. The Haitian National Police is now a stronger, better trained force with U.S. support. And many health indicators continue to improve through the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the USAID programming. We have provided more than $100 million to prevent and respond to cholera in a, as well. But Haiti's long-term development will require the government of Haiti to continue to institutionalize rule of law and anti-corruption efforts, uphold more transparent and accountable institutions to improve the future of Haitian citizens, and address the factors contributing to migration and trafficking in persons. Our rule of law assistance, as I mentioned, supports the Haitian National Police in supporting its capacity. Uh, and we are also working to support judicial independence, reduce pretrial detention levels, and support legislative reforms. As you mentioned, Senator, recently the UN Security Council voted unanimously to withdraw the military component of the UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti, a mission that had been deployed since 2004. This UN vote reflected recognition of the progress Haiti had made towards stabilization and return to democratic order. A smaller police-only UN successor mission will launch on October 16th and will focus on police development, strengthening the rule of law, and protecting human rights. If confirmed, I will work to ensure strong coordination between the Haitian government and UN rule of law efforts and our own US programming in this critical sector. Finally, while continuing to take into account the challenges in Haiti, we must not lose sight of the factors working in Haiti's favor including its vibrant civil society and media, and of course, our strong and engaged Haitian-American population here at home. Of course, the most important of these factors is the continued support of congressional committees and staff. What happens in Haiti is important to the United States. Haiti is a neighbor whose stability and success bolsters our own security and that of the region. A Haiti that takes full responsibility for its own prosperous and democratic future is certainly in our interest, and if confirmed, I will do my best to promote the U.S.-Haitian partnership and lead our talented U.S. interagency team at Embassy Port-au-Prince. I appreciate your consideration of my nomination, and I would be happy to answer any questions you may have for me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. And uh, the Honorable Frank Wolf is here. We, he is here. We welcome him to the committee, and he's here to introduce the President's nominee to be Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Senators. I'll be very brief. I'll submit the statement for the record. It's an honor to be here with Governor and Senator Brownback today. Uh, uh, I've watched, and I'm going to submit the whole thing, I've watched the governor involved international religious freedom, uh, advocacy for the bill, uh, the trafficking victims in person, Sudan Peace Act, North Korea Human Rights Act. Uh, senator Brownback was the first senator to go to uh, Sudan, uh, Darfur, during the genocide. I was with him on that trip. I watched him in action. We were in a village when the Janjaweed were doing things to women, and I watched Sam, and so I just can tell you, he will be an outstanding ambassador for us. And with that, I'll just submit it for the record. God bless.
Thank you. Uh, governor or Senator? Uh, governor, please. All right, I, Governor. Well, I guess it's I, uh, still... am currently occupied but interested and uh, hopeful to be confirmed for this position to be able to uh, move into the role of ambassador. I, uh, I have to say, Frank Wolf, he's a mentor of mine. Uh, I think he is probably of several of us. He just has taught me so much on how you do these issues and the passion that you need to do them with. Because to me, you've got to have a passion about these things to be able to stick with it the length of time it takes to get them done. Uh, and he has done that, and he's, and he's just, I'm honored that he would be here to introduce me. I'd also uh, like to recognize uh, Ambassador Rabbi David Saperstein, who was the most recent occupant of this position, who I've consulted with a couple of times already on the phone. Uh, I worked with previously when I was in the Senate, and he was on the commission, not the ambassador himself, uh, and I found him uh, great to work with. And I'd, I'd like to say to my former colleagues here, uh, this is a position that this body created. We did it in 98, and then you re renewed it last year under the Frank Wolf Act. It is one of those topics that this place has worked very hard to keep bipartisan. Uh, and because of that, it's had a strength that I think some other issues tend not to have. Uh, I pledge to you to continue that bipartisan effort on it. I've worked in this town over a number of years in different capacities and in different, uh, different ways. The way you get things done is often to really try to build that coalition, and often there are people that don't agree on different pieces of the topic. But if you can build the coalition and you can sustain it, you can have something that has longevity, and you can have something that will have impact. And I believe that's what this position can and will be able to do. If confirmed, I look forward to working with a number of you on specific international religious freedom issues, and Lord knows there's enough of them around the world, whether it's the Rohingya that's taking place now, whether it's the Nineveh Plains, whether it's, you could, you could probably go around the world and list a bunch, and I've read through these reports recently because I haven't, I've been serving as governor recently, but going back through it, it's, it's just situation keeps getting worse. And until I think we really engage this topic of international religious freedom and say that, look, this is a fundamental right that you have, to do with your own soul what you choose. This is your right. You need to be able to do it without interference by government or groups. This is a right that we will stand up and defend wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you believe or no belief at all. We will stand for you, and we're going to stand committed for you to be able to practice what you see fit in your own way. And I think this is one of these fundamental human rights that if we start to get it right and it starts to penetrate further around the world, you're going to see more peace break out in places, and you're going to see the, the rest of a number of human rights continue to hopefully grow and flourish. And if we don't get it right, if we don't have religious freedom around the world, you're going to see a continuation of many more conflicts like we have today and probably growing and accelerating taking place. I think this issue is just so critical. It's foundational to our Constitution. It's foundational to the UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights. It is started by this body. It's continued by this body. This position was created uh, here in the Congress. Uh, and I, I really look forward, if confirmed, to working with a number of you because if we don't, we're going to miss an opportunity. And if we miss this opportunity, there's, there is going to be far more difficulty in the world. That's what it's going to be like. And, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to submit my uh, uh, full statement for the record. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There will be no objection to that. Um, all right, I'm going to defer my, my opening question because I know members have votes and I'm going to be here a while. So, um, uh, Senator Gardner, by order of attendance. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and thanks to both of you for your willingness to serve our country. I appreciate uh, your willingness to serve, and certainly thanks to your families as well for this commitment. Governor Brownback uh, had a great conversation and opportunity to visit in the office, and um, one of the things we didn't get into too much, well, a little bit, was water. So the Colorado-Kansas water issues we'll defer to another, <laughs> another day, although it may take a religious uh, perspective at some point uh, between our two states. Yeah, you got to quit doing what you guys are doing. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, you've had better lawyers than we've had. Uh, <laughs> Governor Brownback, during our, our conversation in, in the office, we talked a little bit about some of the unfortunate situation uh, that's occurred uh, in incidences in India with a Christian organization called Compassion International. It's based out of Colorado Springs. Uh, many people are familiar with it. Uh, Compassion International has been in India, was in India since 1968, but in March of last year, it was forced to shut down because of the government's spurious objections over uh, its activities. Compassion provided health, nutrition, medical services, uh, training, you know, tutoring to over 145,000 children. And now these children are left to their own devices. Uh, this organization's situation raises overall concerns about religious freedom issues in India. And according to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, in 2015, religious tolerance deteriorated and religious freedom violations increased in India. Minority communities experience numerous incidents of intimidation, harassment, violence. Uh, furthermore, there seems to be a real crackdown by the, the, uh, on religious uh, NGOs by the Indian government in, in the last year. And according to the same report, in April 2015, the Ministry of Home Affairs revoked the licenses of nearly 9,000 charitable organizations. Now, I think India is an incredibly great nation, uh, and I have the utmost respect for that nation. But I want to make sure that uh, it's not taking a direction uh, that, uh, uh, for the worse and make sure that we're uh, aware of what's happening there. So could you talk about some of maybe the root causes of this uh, freedom of religious intolerance and what we can do to help change that situation? Well, uh, thank you very much, Senator, for the question. I'm familiar with the issue that's arisen. I have not gotten interior internal briefs on what all is taking place because I'm not confirmed for the position, so I don't know any more than what I've been reading and that's available publicly on it. I have worked with the Indian government previously. When I started on this committee at chair over here at the end, I was the subcommittee chairman that dealt with India, and I worked with the government a great deal, the former BJP uh, government, not the current one. Uh, I'm familiar with India, and I, I think this is something we've got to press them on, and we've got to press hard. It, it, India has, in the past, had a very good track record overall uh, of dealing with a lot of religious tolerance. It's a very religiously diverse nation, uh, but I think uh, you I don't know what's causing this, but I pledge to you my work to, um, to press the uh, government of India to, to be a, a government that honors religious freedom for everybody. Uh, and, uh, and we'll look into the issue of what's taking place with Compassion International. I hope to be able to work with your office on it, too. Uh, thank you very much, Governor. And uh, obviously, my work on the East Asia Subcommittee has uh, brought greater attention to uh, the plight of uh, persecution in, in Myanmar. Uh, and the plight of the Rohingya there, and what we need to be doing to make sure that uh, we provide uh, guidance, leadership, and objection to uh, the activities and the treatment that is taking place there, uh, but also concern in India, excuse me, in China uh, as well toward uh, uh, Christian minority in China and what we can be doing around the globe. So thank you for your willingness to serve uh, both of you again, and I'll yield back my time. Thank you, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and again to the witnesses, uh, appreciate, uh, congratulate you for your nomination. Um, Governor Brownback, you, uh, you are supported by a number of people I really care about and respect, and you are suited for this position in many ways. I do have a couple of concerns, and so let me just jump right to them. 
2015, you uh, issued an executive order retracting an eight-year executive order in Kansas that provided protection in the state workforce uh, against adverse employment action on the ground of sexual orientation. Uh, describe why you did that. That was an order that created a right by the executive branch that wasn't available to other people and it wasn't passed by the legislative branch. I believe those sorts of issues should be passed by a legislative branch. Do you commonly issue executive orders? What's that? Do you commonly issue as governor executive orders? Uh, some, but not uh, and isn't that huge the, isn't that kind of the point of an executive order? You issue an executive order on something that the legislature hasn't passed. If it was clearly in statute, you wouldn't need to issue an executive order. Yeah, but if this, this is a foundational issue that you were creating a right for state employees that wasn't available to the rest of the people in the state. And also, and was, I it, just, was, I it, was it bad it, to give like state it, employees that right? What I just, I believe you, these sort of things ought to be passed by, they ought to be passed by the body. I have one that feels like you ought to create and have the law pass itself. Can I, can I ask that, you this? That, you, so that answers why we did that, why I did that. Is, is the governor of Kansas, as the governor, do you appoint cabinet secretaries? I do. Do you appoint agency heads? Uh, most, not all, but I do. And in, do you take those appointments seriously, interview people to make sure they're competent, honest, that they can do the job well? As to the best of my ability. You feel like you have high standards in the people that you appoint? Yes. W wouldn't it be appropriate in terms of setting a standard for your workforce, for your cabinet secretaries and agency heads, for you to say to them, I don't think you should discriminate against people on the grounds of their sexual orientation? If you're hiring for honesty, if you're hiring for competence, wouldn't that be an appropriate thing that the governor as the chief of a state personnel operation would, would want to know about leaders in state government? I, I think it would be a rational thing. I just don't think it's a right that the executive branch should create without the legislative branch. When I was governor, the first day I did an executive order that protected people in a variety of ways, including on the grounds of sexual orientation. First order I signed about 10 minutes after I was inaugurated in Williamsburg. And I had an attorney general who made the same point to me. He said, well, the legislature didn't do this. And I said, but I'm hiring agency heads and cabinet secretaries who are administering state government. And I think as the chief executive, one of the things I want to know about them is that they will not discriminate against employees. Can't you see that the retraction of an executive order like this that had been placed for eight years sends a message that that is not a value, non-discrimination against folks on the grounds of sexual orientation, that's not a value that you share? I, I don't think it sends that message. And furthermore, as being the ambassador on religious freedom, I look forward to working with people, working with you, working with everybody, regardless of their ideas or views on how we can advance the agenda of religious freedom. There may be differences on other topics. Uh, there are differences that Ambassador Saperstein and I have on other topics. Let, let me connect the it to religious but freedom. The beauty of this topic has been that people... We tend to focus on what bipartisan things are that we agree upon. And I pledge to you to do that in this role as ambassador for religious freedom. Let me and connect to continue, this. The, continue the work that Ambassador Saperstein Let me has connect done in this, this to religious well. freedom. Are you aware that there are countries around the world where you can be imprisoned and even executed uh, if you are LGBT? I, be I believe that's correct. Do, do you, and are you also aware that in some of those countries, the asserted justification for criminal treatment of people based on LGBT status is 
a religious justification. But that's I, what's cited as the justification for the criminal punishment of people who are LGBT. Yeah. I had a lengthy conversation yesterday with Randy Berry, who um, worked with Ambassador Saperstein in the prior administration, uh, who uh, has Kansas roots, as, as you do some as well. Uh, and we had a good conversation about how these two offices work together, and I don't see doing anything any different than what they work together on for as well, far as the topics. Well, to, that that wasn't really to my question. Real, but that really is the point. Is there, the is there any circumstance under which religious freedom can justify criminalizing, imprisoning, or executing people based on their LGBT status? Well, I agree with what Randy Berry did around the world on that topic. I'm not fully briefed on the various and the specifics, but what he basically did and described to me yesterday and the work they did back and forth with Ambassador Saperstein, I, would, I wouldn't see changing. Okay, but I, let me just, I'm going to close just with this question. I'd like an answer to this question. Is there any circumstance under which criminalizing, imprisoning, or executing somebody based on their LGBT status could be deemed acceptable because somebody asserts that they are religiously motivated in doing so. I, I don't know what that would be, in what circumstance, but I would continue the policies that have been done in the prior administration in working on these international issues. I, I, I really would expect an unequivocal answer on that, but my time is up. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations, Governor Brambach, Ambassador Sisson. Uh, thank you both for your willingness to serve. And Ambassador Sisson, I'm especially um, appreciative that you are taking on the role in Haiti. I know that you've had other challenging roles in Lebanon and other places as ambassador. So thank you for your willingness to do that. Uh, Governor Brownback, I, I want to ask you about your thoughts about what, what message it sends to the rest of the world with respect to Pers religious persecution, because I agree one of our first lessons as children in school is learning that the United States was founded because people were fleeing religious um, persecution. Um, we have a group of Indonesians in New Hampshire who have been here fleeing persecution from Indonesia, religious persecution, they're Christians, and they are now under threat of deportation um, even though they're not criminals, they are being sent back to Indonesia where the record of religious persecution of Christians has gotten worse in the last several years. So what kind of message do you think that sends to the rest of the world as we're holding the United States up as a model for trying to make sure that people of all faiths can be treated fairly here to send back to a country where they are certainly going to be persecuted again because of their religion? I, I don't know the specific circumstances of what you're talking about, uh, Senator. Uh, I'd be happy uh, to look into it because it doesn't sound uh, appropriate, but I, I don't know the, the specific breadth of the Well, but my question was really what kind of a message does that send to the rest of the world when we persecute people, when we are not willing to accept people fleeing religious persecution in the United States? Well, I think we should accept people that are fleeing religious persecution. They, there's, I used to do a lot of this work, 
on helping people that were persecuted for their faith in various countries to get to the United States and help them in, when they would resettle in my state. And there are then often a lot of, of different circumstances engaged other than just the one. The one is important, and it, and it shouldn't be one that causes them not to come. But often there's just a series of what I found issues, and I'm very sympathetic to people fleeing a plight because of a, of a religious persecution. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the work you did in the Senate um, to address yeah. religious persecution. Um, my concern is that sometimes that support has come at the expense of other groups, um, women in particular, who I think um, women's health is sometimes put at risk because of suggestions of ensuring individuals' religious freedom. So how do you address that for women who have been denied access to health care, um, even women who are victims of rape and incest who are not able to access um, abortion services? The, uh, how, why is that okay in the name of religious freedom for certain individuals? The, the, I want to answer a broader question then drill into your your point here. The, the beauty of what this job has been, I think, under the prior administration and this one is that, that there are contentious issues that people don't agree upon. And this position has tried to stay in its lane on religious freedom. And we could veer off into a lot of other debate points and lose the support of the Congress and lose support around the world. But I think the key pace piece is to stay in the lane of religious freedom and those things that start to pull you out uh, of it that you shouldn't go there, whether it's the issue you're talking about or others, just because th this one is so critical and difficult enough as it is without trying to venture into uh, the, the difficult abortion debate or other debates domestically and to focus this on international and on the places that we agree upon. That's how I did the original bills on working on this, on human trafficking with Paul Wellstone. The, there were differences of opinion on what all should be included in that. But the ones that he was pursuing from his side of the aisle that I couldn't agree on, he dropped. The ones that I was pursuing on my side of the aisle that he wouldn't agree on, I, he, I dropped. And we ended up with a pretty decent bill. And that's why I think this is an important position not to get into a number of these more difficult debate points that we're in in the United States. And I pledge to you to, to stay there in this lane on a bipartisan basis. So will you commit to this committee that you will work with civil society organizations who are defending human rights, not just for religious minorities, but for women and for um, people in the LGBTQ communities? I will work with anybody that I can on the topic of religious freedom and not veer out of that lane. Because I think if you start to veer out of that lane, you get pulled to other topics that other people are charged with doing, you're going to lose the bipartisan support for the position, which is critical to have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And uh, so Senator Kane went to vote. When he gets here, he'll, he'll assume the gavel for the until I get to go a chance to get over there and get back. So in the interim, I'll, I'll just use that time to try to get my questions in, just to bring further clarity, because a number of the questions have pulled you in that direction. 
Governor Brownback. And so I want to kind of refocus a little bit on the job that you'll have. The job of the ambassador at large is to, is to advocate for religious liberty, which is oftentimes challenged or almost invariably challenged in places where either the population of that particular religious uh, view is a minority in numbers, or even if they're a majority, the government is of a different persuasion and targets those individuals for persecution. And so the job that you've been nominated to do is basically to advocate for the religious liberty of all religious uh, entities uh, and, and denominations and views around the world, uh, irrespective of their size, their theology, or their views on, on one particular issue versus another. If there is persecution on the basis of religion uh, or oppression on the basis of religion or the denial of liberty on the basis of religion, your job would be to advocate for that freedom for them to practice in peace. Uh, th that is the scope of the job that you've been nominated to. Not, is that correct? Not to litigate theological points or policy differences beyond the scope of that liberty. I, that is, and I also think that's the strength of the position is to stay in that lane that is bipartisan agreed to, that has seen these bills pass with large majorities or by unanimous consent on international religious freedom. You start to veer into these more difficult uh, issues and discussions, you will lose support for the job, you'll lose support for the position, and the position will be less effective, if, if effective at all. Now, in terms of the, uh, the position itself, uh, last year the Congress passed the Frank Wolf International Religious Freedom Act, which, among other things, elevated the position you've been nominated to, to internally within the State Department so that it now is, by statute, required to report directly to the Secretary, which was designed to combat years of the position and the issue being relegated to a sort of secondary concern rather than being fully integrated into U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Secretary Tillerson has informed the Senate of his intent to have this role report to the Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, and I want to state clearly and here and on the record, that runs contrary to the legislative intent of the law that Congress passed, and it is something that we object to. I'm not asking you to opine on it, um, but I, I do want to use this opportunity to make clear that that is not the intent of that law, and we would view that as indirect violation and contradiction of the law that was passed. That said, um, I want to hear more about how you intend to uh, obviously recognizing the limitations you have here before us today, how do you plan, what would you do uh, that you could share with us to elevate the international religious freedom issues within U.S. foreign policy at large and within the ranks of the U.S. State Department? Because that was the intent of this law, not just to require a direct report, but to elevate the importance of this as a critical component of our broader foreign policy. As one, as one of the original sponsors of the 1998 Act, I thought the Frank Wolf Act really improved uh, on what took place in the 1998 Act. The 1998 Act was groundbreaking, but I, I think it had some limitations to it that a number of people saw. One of the big things I think needs to take place is what you put in the Act of having a cross-agency, cross-section uh, group that meets to advise and work on international religious freedom issues. So it's not just within State Department. It's also the security apparatus and the aid uh, organizations, and I look forward to working with that and, br and bringing that multi-agency approach uh, to this task of religious freedom. Because I, I think that's the effectiveness that the Congress is looking for that I certainly want to implement uh, in, this particular, uh, in, in this particular bill and, and in this particular area. And as I said at the outset, which I'm just firmly convinced, we, we have got to get more focus on this by a broader cross-section 
or we will not be effective in this. And if we're not effective on religious freedom, you're going to see violence continue to grow in many places around the world. So I look forward to implementing the Frank Wolf Act. Well, and just as an aside, and uh, perhaps an editorial moment here for me, but uh, and you can agree if you'd like. In fact, I'd prefer if you did, but um, <laughs> I don't know about to say, but I think you will. And because we spoke about this yesterday, you see the plight of the Rohingya Muslims that are facing persecution in Burma, and I would argue that has a direct national security implication for the United States. To their credit, the leaders of that community have been very resistant to and uh, it's the right, they've rejected efforts by uh, radical elements to, to reach out and, um, and, and sort of take advantage of the situation. That said, uh, when uh, a population of people anywhere in the world is being persecuted, mistreated, and in this case even killed, um, they become vulnerable to outside actors showing up and trying to take advantage of those circumstances. And it is yet another example beyond the humanitarian concerns of why it is in the national security interest of the United States uh, to ensure that people around the world have an opportunity to live in peace and prosperity. It is the right thing to do morally. It is also the pragmatic thing to do because that instability, that suffering, that violence, uh, those humanitarian uh, catastrophes all create the conditions within which radical elements and bad actors around the world, that is their playground. That is, the, that is what they took advantage of in Syria uh, with regards to the sectarian abuses occurring on behalf of the Assad regime. And so again, this is another example of why that is so important. I want to now turn to Haiti for a moment, uh, obviously a very important part of this nomination. And uh, I always tell nominees, if you're not getting a lot of questions in our hearing, it's, it's, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but, but, but I do want to ask, because it's so important to Florida, Haiti has had such a difficult history. We know it, and we know the struggles they've had. On the issue of Haiti, one of the decisions the White House and the administration will have to make soon is, is about uh, whether or not to continue to extend temporary protective status. Um, and I'm not asking you to opine on what they should do. I'm asking you to give us insight as to what the implications would be if, in fact, TPS is not extended. And Haiti is asked to assume a significant number of people over a short period of time. In your view, what would the implications of that be for the Haitian government uh, in terms of uh, absorbing uh, this reentry? Uh, what would the implications be for them? If TPS was not extended and people were forced to return, what would it mean to the Haitian government, to their capacity, and to their ability to, to handle that? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, I mean, as we know, uh, TPS was extended for an additional six months uh, and is set to expire on January 22, 2018. So the process uh, is, of course, that under the Immigration and Nationality Act, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary has the authority to designate a foreign state for temporary protected status. But before a decision is made, for what will happen in January of 2018, of course, DHS will consult all relevant government agencies, including the Department of State, in determining whether conditions for TPS continue to be met in Haiti. So, uh, Ms. Hassan, I apologize. I, I understand the process for right. making the decision. My question is, uh, what, in your view, would it mean? I'm not asking you to tell me whether they should or shouldn't extend right. it. I'm just curious your views on what it would mean for Haiti if, in fact, TPS is not extended. Exactly, Senator. You know, the embassy uh, in Port-au-Prince is part of this process. They are contributing to a country conditions assessment that looks at infrastructure, 
health, sanitation services, continued ability to respond uh, to, to disasters. So if confirmed, I'm going to want to keep the lines of communication open with you, your sen the senators, and the staff in terms of the implications uh, for the U.S. partnership on the ground and um, what we're doing with Haiti, I believe that a number of the programs that we actually have in place now in terms of assisting with economic livelihoods, assisting with agricultural and food security, um, these economic growth programs, these educational programs, these health programs, all help build a resilience with our Haitian partners in order to respond uh, not only to the natural disasters, of course, the TPS was uh, put into place uh, after uh, the earthquake in 2010, but also building the resilience for uh, the eventual uh, return, if this is determined, um, of uh, approximately um, you know, I apologize. I have to go vote, and my time has expired. And I know Senator Kane has questions about Haiti as well. I would just say I understand as a nominee why you don't want to delve into this is what it would mean to Haiti. So I just want to say this: I think it would be difficult for them um, to absorb it if that's the decision the administration makes, which I hope they do not. But if they did, my view is that the embassy will have a lot of work on its hands, and and the government of Haiti will require a lot of assistance. And so it is my advice that even when confirmed, as I anticipate you will be. Uh, that, uh, that you make that argument, that in essence, you guys make the decision you need to make, but if you decide to terminate TPS, we better step up our presence and our operations here because the Haitian government's already struggling with the people that are there now. Any large influx of returnees will strain that, and, uh, and we will need to have greater capacity uh, to help them meet that demand. Again, unsolicited advice, but... Uh, I think it's good advice, but it's my I, advice. I look forward to okay. continuing to work with yes, you, Senator. Thank you. I, I, sec, I second that emotion. Uh, I think that's, that's very good advice. Um, in, uh, Ms. Sisson, Ambassador Sisson, in April 2017, the UN Security Council decided that the UN Stabilization Mission in, in, in Haiti, which was established in 04, would come to an end later this year. I think October 15th, we're coming up on the date. Uh, that would include a full withdrawal of the mission's military component, which is about 2,000 personnel talk about this transition um, and what it might mean in Haiti and is the Haitian government sort of prepared to take on these responsibilities and things that you might be able to do in your capacity should you be confirmed to help in this next chapter? Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, the um, MINUSTA, UN Stabilization Force, winds down uh, October 15 and the very next day, October 16, Minujust, the justice sector support uh, force, police only, stands up. And I am up at the uh, U.S. mission to the United Nations now, tracking this very issue, and uh, in conversations with the Department of Peacekeeping up at the U.N., uh, I am uh, well aware that the U.N. is on track, uh, both for the timing of this transition, uh, for the budgeting of this new police-only justice sector support a mission that will focus on police development and rule of law and human rights. Um, the locations uh, are spread throughout the country appropriately, uh, standing up civilian staff, corrections officers, 38, to uh, cover 
countrywide, some of these pretrial detention issues that I mentioned in my opening statement, individual police officers and formed police units, uh, seven formed police units, so the total number of uh, police there between the IPOs and the formed police units, 1,275. The support, the medical, aviation, legal, all of this package is on track. Combined with that, we continue our own U.S. bilateral rule of law and police development support, and that is also an important factor here. Now, that U.N. vote that you mentioned, of course, was unanimous, and it was recognition um, mm -hmm. of the success that Haiti has had uh, in returning uh, in their democratic uh, transition after the uh, elections, the recent elections, and also um, to the fact that the Haitian National Police uh, is much stronger today. And again, a lot of that is thanks to U.S. bilateral support that we've provided to stand up the force. It'll be up to 15,000 by the end of this year. Uh, we have provided, through our U.S. support, training, equipping, and we've really partnered with the other donors, including the U.N., to enhance law and order on the ground, but also Haiti's ability to combat uh, the scourge of narcotics, for example, which has become a transnational threat. Um, so, uh, you know, short answer to your question is that our U.S. partnership, but also the role that we play at the U.N., I think is uh, setting this up to be a successful transition later on this month. Thank you for that thorough answer. I appreciate that. Governor Brownback, quickly. Um, you have taken some steps, or, or Kansas has during your tenure as governor, that have been perceived as anti-Muslim, pulling out of the federal refugee resettlement program, uh, voicing support for the Muslim ban that first announced by President Trump in January, uh, signing an anti-Sharia law bill. Um, I, I would like to give you the opportunity to talk about, because you clearly have a track record of battling for religious minorities in this body and elsewhere, I'd like to have you talk about your commitment actions in the past or your commitment to battle for Muslims when they're in minority status around the world. The chair's opening comments talked about the deplorable situation with Rohingya Muslims in, in Burma. Um, the situation of Shia in some nations like Bahrain have raised human rights about their minority religious status. And I suspect this is something that you've worked on in the past, and I want to give you a chance to address that issue. It is something I've worked on in the past, and I'll work on it in this job if confirmed uh, for it as well. Um, I believe in fundamental right, practice, religion as you see fit, whoever you are, whatever your belief, whatever, if it's a Muslim group, if it's a Christian group, if it's a Buddhist, Hindu, Baha'i, any Jewish group, whatever it is, you have that right and I will fight for protection so that you will be able to exercise your religious freedom uh, in peace from any government or group, period. That's what I've done in the past. The Rohingya is a terrible situation. I've pushed back against the government in Burma before when I was here. They were persecuting a tribe of uh, people in the north, the Karen, that were being then trafficked into Bangkok, into a number of prostitution places. I've, I've worked on Darfur Peace and Accountability Act, which that was a Muslim generally population that was being persecuted there, and I carried the original, one of the original carriers of that, uh, that bill. You, you read the International Religious Freedom Report and you see how much persecution there is of Muslims around the world, to your specific mm -hmm. point. Uh, that's wrong. It should not take place. 
I will stand up and fight for those communities as I have in the past. I will do that in the future. Thank you for that answer. This is, uh, I agree with you, this is foundational. It's, it's in our First Amendment for a reason. Um, we have a little bit of Virginia pride in Jefferson's authorship of the statute of religious freedom that became the basis of the First Amendment that was drafted by another Virginian, Madison. And it could have been put in the Fourth or Fifth Amendment, but it was put up front for a reason, and it's so very important, and I appreciate that answer. And I think uh, with that, um, I think the chair gave me the permission to uh, close this portion of the hearing. Um, other members may ask questions in writing, and if they do, I would appreciate uh, y'all uh, responding promptly. We'll leave the record open until the uh, five o'clock tomorrow afternoon for members to submit questions and then try to respond promptly if you can. Uh, and thank you again for appearing today and congratulations on your nominations. With that, this portion of the hearing is adjourned and we will wait till the return of our chair and start a second hearing about the, the treatment of minorities in Iraq. <laughs>